Welcome back. I am here with Terry Loveless. Terry, welcome, my friend. Thank you. Good to be here, Sean. Okay, so you've been on a ton of podcasts, so I, I want to be very efficient with what we cover and, and just kind of go straight to the, the good stuff. So you're in Devil's Den. which is in northern Arkansas, in the middle of an open clearing, in a place that you subsequently learned was on either federal land or BLM land. It's a flat surface. You're camping there with your friend, and you see these strange lights. What happens next? Yeah, from there, what happened was, and and I just want to make it clear, this plateau where we were staying was miles from the campground. So we were remote in our location. There was nobody around us. Things went dead quiet. Things went still. The breeze that we had going on died abruptly. Three frogs, crickets, all that stopped. My buddy turns his head to the left, which would have been to the west. And he says, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm looking and I can't see him because his torso is in the way. They're sitting right on the horizon. I step up and take a step back, and on the horizon are three bright little stars clustered together in a perfect triangle. And they were too far above the horizon to have been lights from a parking lot or a train or something. They had to be something in the sky. And I said, I don't remember anything like that. And my mind's racing. What are these things? What could they be? And while we're watching, they rotated and they turned about 120 degrees clockwise. And then the triangle aligned with the base parallel with the horizon. Mm -hmm. Three dots of light. This is about the time that we had this sense of calm come over us. And that's really important because our reactions were muted, our, our emotions were muted. We didn't react the way people normally would if they saw something like this. And I mean, I think it's common for two human beings to want to validate this stuff with one another and say, seeing what I'm seeing and what is that thing? And unlike that, and there was nothing like that. There was nothing like that. We're in this calm space. There's an injection that they give you before they take you into surgery that makes you just kind of chill and takes away the anxiety. And that's the way I felt. And it made me feel very much more like an observer than a participant in what was going on. Mm-hmm. Then goes up into the air and we're seeing it oriented. We're seeing the three points of light and it climbs up and hits what I call a ceiling. I had no reference. So I didn't know how big it was. I had no idea how high it was, but it reached a point in the sky And then it changed orientation and turned like this. So we saw three dots of light in a line because each point of the triangle was lit. So the apex of the triangle was pointed toward us. Mm -hmm. And that formed a single line. And it started like a glide plane 
down toward us. And it was clear that it was headed in our direction. And it did something interesting. It did this somersault thing where the apex, the point of the triangle, would dip down and it would rotate all the way around. And it did that twice. And my thought, I don't know where this came from. My thought was that's intentional. They're doing that to let us know, yeah, it's us, we're here. That to me was a form of intentional communication. Was it really? I, I don't know, but that's was my perception. Again, we had no fear, no anxiety, no nothing. It cruised in and stopped about 3,000 feet, I'm guessing, but I'm, I think that's a pretty fair estimate, over our heads. Size-wise, it's about the size of a Walmart. It's big, with a light on each point of the triangle. Was there anything in the middle of it? Yeah, there was, although we really couldn't see it. What we saw was, we saw uh, a light come down, like a laser-like light. This was uh, June of 1977. Lasers were relatively new. I had never seen one in real life. I'd only seen them on television or in motion pictures or something. The, there were two. The first light shot down. I mean, like someone hit a switch and it was just on. And it was very bright. And it was about the size of a softball in diameter. And it was this white column of white light that had this milky quality to it. You know, like a high-power searchlight cuts through fog. You see that mm -hmm. column of light is visible. It had that quality to it, but, you know, there was no fog. So it was just a visible white light. And it landed dead square in the middle of our campfire and stayed there for like a minute. And it abruptly turns off. And then immediately in its stead, there came a second light this was a laser beam about the diameter of a pencil. And it would shoot down and it would strike something in our campsite and stay there for a tenth of a second or less and then reappear somewhere else. So in a second, it is 10 different places all over the campsite. So it gave the illusion that this light was dancing all over the, and it struck me in the chest three times at least. I didn't feel anything. I know it struck my buddy, it struck our tent, his backpack, cooler that we had, my car. So it was like everything we brought with us that wasn't native to that plateau it hit with this light. And my thought was, it, this thing's checking us out. It wants to know what we are, who we are. And that was my thought. Now, the plateau you're on, I know it's it's on a plateau, it's surrounded by trees, but it's relatively flat. How high was the grass? Was it maintained or was it just? It's maintained. It's cut. It, it, were there any access roads to the site? There's a dirt road that went straight up. I'll tell you how tall it is, is that the plateau itself is level with the treetops of the surrounding forest. So it's high. I didn't bother looking for it on Google Earth because I thought, 45 years, this place has to be covered with mature trees by now. You know, no. we're not going to, nope, it's still there. When I used to manage my Facebook page, I don't do it anymore. I should, but I put the photos up. The guys from Astonishing Legend found it on Google Earth and sent it to me. And I was astounded because I'm mm. like, that's where we were. 
and I, I put the images up on Google Earth, uh, from Google Earth up on my uh, Facebook page. And this guy is a landscaper in Alabama. We exchanged messages back and forth now and then. And he said, look, I'm a landscaper. He says, when I enlarge this, I can see tractor tread marks in the grass. He said, somebody goes up there with what, what he called a brush hog. I'd never heard the term before, but I guess it's like a big mower deck that you pull behind a farm tractor. But he said, somebody goes up there and cuts that. So for 40 some year, almost 50 years, the government's been paying. That's a lot of gas to burn to cut the top of a plateau in the middle of nowhere. So go figure. Yeah, if, if I were to really reach and try to find a terrestrial explanation for that, and again, I'm really reaching. Let's say that the Air Force PJs maybe use that as training for a drop zone or Army Pathfinders use that for I doubt the Army Pathfinders use it, but that's the only thing if I really rack my brain why they would do that. But why would they maintain this random place that's kind of off the beaten path? Well, it doesn't yeah, make any as sense. As a matter of fact, we were trespassing. You know, when, when I was uh, being grilled by the OSI in my uh, hospital room, the OSI agent said to me, he says, you know, you boys were on federal land. And I thought, no, we weren't. We were, you know, we were in a state park. It's not federal land. And just for, for the audience that uh, doesn't, you know, kind of fell off the turnip truck and doesn't know who you are. It's the Office of Special Investigations in the Air Force. Is that right? Okay. Is that the right? Yes. Yeah. That's good. And at the time you were you were a medic in the Air Force attached to a unit Whiteman White Air, Whiteman Air Force Base, which was the 351st Strategic Missile Wing, Correct. which was responsible for maintaining the Minuteman II, which is basically a MERV system, multiple integrated reentry vehicles, mm-hmm. which are nuclear missiles, right? ICBMs that when as they're going into space, these reentry vehicles split off. So there's multiple warheads on each of these nukes. That, Five, I think. Five. So this incident happened in northern Arkansas. It was relatively close, or how close was it to Whiteman? Oh, it was six and a half hour drive south. Okay. So it wasn't real close to Whiteman. It was a half a day's drive. Okay. But, you know, uh, that's another interesting thing is there, there were a dozen nice parks all around us at Whiteman. There was the Nobnoster State Park, which is a beautiful state park, which was directly outside the front gate. And I said to my friend, I said, you know, hey, why don't we just why don't we just try camping here? You know, if it's bad news, we can go home. And he says, yeah, but where's the adventure in that? You know, the road trips have the fun. And he convinced me. But I, I wonder why he was so fixated on this place. And in retrospect, he was able to choose the correct path because once you got past that chain across the road with the keep out, do not enter sign, as you're driving through the park, all you're seeing is trees on either side of you and a gravel road. And there were a dozen different lefts or rights you could have made. And he called the right couple of turns to make, and we drove right to the thing. And since the top of the plateau is level with the tops of the trees, it's invisible. You can't see it until you're right up on it. So... You know, by coincidence, by happenstance, by design, I don't know. So, again, this is pure speculation. If it were by design, what are the possibilities? Let's assume the government knows about all this stuff 
Is there any chance he was working for the Office of Special Investigations and directed you there intentionally? Is it no some sort I, of like subconscious drive to get there? What do you think? Well, you know, I had experiences as a child. Toby and I never discussed this, but he was fascinated with the night sky. He was absolutely just fascinated with it. And his dream was he wanted to finish his active duty time, get the GI Bill, go to University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and get a degree in physics or cosmology and then go to grad school. We had an on-base extension college through Central Missouri State University. And he took some heavy math classes there in the evening kind of evening classes, just, you know, nailed them. So he's a very, very bright kid. But my question is, where did that fascination with the sky come from? Well, that's the other thing, too. He had a fascination with it, but you have an intense fear of it, like the open sky, right? I don't like the open sky. I, I do not. I don't much go out at night. Uh, I have a fear of wide open spaces. I mean, I would rather walk a mile and a half around to get to the other side than cut through an open space because I feel vulnerable. And I think that's just one of the PTSD-like symptoms that, you know, are a result of this event that we experienced. Okay. So I think we provided lots of context. Going back to the field, the red beams of light are shooting in all directions. Then what? That lasted maybe 90 seconds. And again, that's a guess. Then abruptly, that feeling of calm and relaxation shifted to sleepy. Now, relaxed and sleepy are, are related, but they're two completely different things. All I wanted to do was get to the tent, throw my air mattress inside, fall on top of it, and go to sleep. That's what I wanted. And uh, my friend was like-minded because he was ahead of me. We didn't speak hardly a word during this whole thing is playing out. And uh, he stood up and he said, show's over. Like that, kind of unemotional. When the red lights stopped dancing all over the place, show's over, picked up his air mattress, went, threw it into the tent and fell on top of it. And by the time I got there, he was already snoring. And I threw my air mattress in. I, and this is important. I didn't bother to take my boots off. I wore my combat boots, jeans, T-shirt, didn't bother to undress. I just fell on top of the plastic pillow and uh, boom, I was out. I was unconscious. I think. And then I had no dreams, no memory of anything. The next thing that happened that I was aware of, conscious of, was this light coming through the canvas of the tent. It was just really, really intense, like a camera flash intense. And it wasn't just white lights. Now it's like orangish, yellowish tinted lights and light. And they're shining, but they're shining at odd intervals. It's not on a repetitive, predictable pattern. It's just flash, 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 you know, just un unpredictable pattern. And I'm looking at this and it woke me up and I'm thinking, what is this? And I thought maybe it's like park rangers, the overhead lights from a park rangers truck there to throw us out because we're trespassing. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's cool. I can live with that. Right. And I sat up and that's when I noticed that my boots had been unlaced all the way down. 
And I know I did not go to bed with him like that. I wouldn't have done that. I would have taken him off. I'd have had him laced up all the way, which is what I had. And it didn't scare me, but it annoyed me. And I took off my boots. My socks were on sideways. And that kind of unnerved me because I knew I didn't do that. I would never do that. You know, in the military, they teach you to take care of your feet, right? And yeah. uh, I put my socks back on properly. I put my boots on, laced them up, turned my attention what, to my friend. What time was this? Was it still night when you're... It was still night. That's an interesting okay. fact. We both wore mechanical wind-up watches, which was state-of-the-art for the day. Mine was a good watch. It was an Elgin. You had to wind it and be good for a couple of days, but it kept very good time. And it was integral to the job. If you were going to be an EMT driving an ambulance, you needed to have that for taking someone's pulse or making accurate notes of times and the like. So we had good watches. Both of those watches stopped at 240. Mine stopped at 240 on the nose. Toby stopped at 242. And these were mechanical watches. Like and these were mechanical in- watches. Yes. So... I wish I'd saved that watch because I'd like to know, is it exposed to electromagnetism or something that interfered with the mechanics of the watch? What what killed both of those watches? I think just, I yeah, which is weird because it doesn't operate electromagnetically. It operates, it's a mechanical watch. So yeah. it, it's, it's as if something just sucked up all of the potential energy. It's almost like, uh, if you imagine a, a vehicle operating off, say, zero-point energy, it's like it just sucks up all the energy in the vacuum, including the potential energy. But again, who knows? But it stopped working after the event. Well, at 2.41, we don't know where we were. Now, we found out we had no idea what time of night it was. And it turned out we were about an hour from sunrise. So, I don't know, 4.30 a.m. something. So we had no idea what time it was. And from my attention to my friend Toby, he's looking at something through his window. I'm still kind of going with the park ranger thing. I'm like, Toby, what is it, man? Is it park rangers? What's out there? And he didn't give me a coherent answer. I don't remember his exact words, but it wasn't a coherent answer. So I got to my knees and I noticed that I had body aches real bad. And I lifted the flap on my side of the tent and I saw, well, I saw two things that this craft that had been 3000 feet over our heads when we went to bed had descended and it's now like 30 feet off the floor of the meadow. And it's enormous. And Toby and I had a bit of a disagreement about where to set up camp. I wanted to set up camp right in the middle of the meadow. And he was insistent that we set it up off to the side. Had we set it up where I wanted to, this thing had been right over our heads. And fortunately, I I acquiesced and we set up camp off to the side so that we weren't directly underneath this thing, because that would have been, you know, as intimidating as it was, that would have been even more intimidating. So the thing's now 30 feet off the ground. Second thing was there were little gray guys, and they, they were just strolling around the meadow like tourists or something. They were just just walking around and they were all paired up in like twos and threes. They were all, they were just silhouetted kind of until there was a flash of light from these lights on the points of the triangle. That's the reason it was only 30 feet off the ground. And one of those points of light and one of the points of the triangle was near our tent. That's why the light was so intense. 
But when these lights would go off for just a millisecond, I could get a clear picture of what was going on underneath this thing. And like I say, we're some distance away from it. And I saw them as kids. I didn't look that close. And I'm like, Toby, man, what, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And he said, Terry, look at them, man. They're not human beings. And that was the first fear that I felt. That that was when I, I really felt afraid because because uh, he was right. They Their limbs were disproportionate to their torso, their legs. They walked with a really weird gait. They walked like they had sore feet. It's my best description or a limp of some kind. I was just terrified that one of us were going to cough or sneeze or do something to draw their attention. And I, it hadn't occurred to us yet that they were long done with us. I made that uh, connection fairly early on that the reason my socks were on sideways was because I'd been undressed and redressed. So we watched and the, the next thing that happened was there was a light from underneath the triangle again, dead center, and it shot down a 30 foot wide column of white light. I say 30 feet because it was about as broad as this thing was off the ground. And it had that milky white visible quality to it that that first beam of light had. These little guys would walk over to it in pairs and in threes. And when they got into the light, they would pixelate out. Very much like the Star Trek, um, and I'm not a sci-fi fan. I don't remember what they called it, but people still The, tel the teleporters. Yeah. Very much like that. Uh, pixelate out. And then the next two or three would step in. And then when the last two were gone, the lights shut off and the lights on the points of the triangle shifted from kind of multicolored to all white. And it took off, but not like a rocket ship. It took off like a hot air balloon. It just kind of lifted up off the ground, rotated a little bit and went higher and higher. The higher it got, the, the faster it went. And we watched it was three points of light and we're laying on our backs now with our head outside the tent, watching this thing go up in the air and see it become a single point of light. And then it's, it's gone. And a friend told one, he said, let's go, let's, let's get out of here. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not leaving this tent until daylight. But I, I knew he was right. I knew we had to leave. And I, I wanted to get out of there. I was just scared to death. I felt like that canvas over my head gave me cover. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be out in the open. But I grabbed my car keys, my wallet. He grabbed his flashlight, his wallet, and we bolted for the car. We left everything we owned there. His cooler, his backpack. You know, that was an interesting thing, too, was Toby had a camera. I forgot my camera, which is insane because that was the whole purpose of the exercise. I was an amateur photographer. I really wanted to go down there and photograph some wildlife. And I bought all these special lenses and, and good film. I had a nice Shishika camera I got bought off a guy. And I left it at home. And that's just not like, we left a lot of things. We had this plan and the, it's like the wheels fell off. But the thought of taking a picture of this thing never crossed our minds. Not, and that's unusual. But, you know, I really think that that speaks to the level of influence that these things can have over us. Because if you know anybody who's really active in the photography, I mean, they're to the point of being annoying and wanting to take mm -hmm. pictures of everything. And uh, like I say, never crossed my mind. 
And Toby, thankfully, had an unerring sense of direction. And I'm like, man, it's pitch dark out here. Can you navigate me out of here? And that's the way we kind of did the ambulance thing. I always drove the ambulance. He always navigated because he had the sense of direction I didn't have. And he got us back to the main road. And we were both hurting. We both had what's called flash burns to the eyes. And it's the same injury that a arc welder would get if they didn't wear that hood with the, mm-hmm. with the smoked uh, glass on it. And it's very painful. It's a sunburn to the cornea of your eye, basically. It feels like you have sand in your eyes and you're photophobic. Light hurts it. And so we're both dealing with that. And I had the worst sunburn like I'd ever had in my life over every inch of my body. I mean, every inch of my body. Under my arms, I mean, everywhere, I got, I'm burned. Never blistered. It was painful, but it never blistered. I was never out in the sun. It never took off my shirt. I shouldn't have been burnt like that. So uh, on the way back, the only conversation we had in six and a half, seven hours was this. We both agreed. We made a pact that come what may, we would not tell anyone ever that we saw a UFO the size of a Walmart because we'd been on active duty long enough to know what happens to people whenever they say that. And that is at the time, at the time, what kind of clearance did you have just a, an SCI or TSSCI? I don't remember what they called it. I had a clearance where if a uh, missile technician fell inside a silo, which happened once, you know, guy broke his ankle doing routine maintenance on a missile in the middle of the night. I had clearance to go in and get the guy and take him out. I had clearance if I needed to, to go into the uh, launch control facility. But I think we had to go with chaperone. And, and that never happened. I never had to go there. So I had some. So, so yeah, it's probably some level of top secret SCI. But I know there's a separate kind of term for it for nuclear uh, secrets. So I would guess you were probably cleared for that, but you had probably had to go through like a long, somebody had to call your neighbors and they did all that. All my high school teachers and yeah, they did all that relatives. Okay. So you're driving back, you have these burns. Then what happens? We made the pact not to tell a soul because we knew that if people reported seeing something like that. This is 1977. They would be sent away for a psych eval because they had to do that because if they saw something and they're insistent on it and they think they know what they saw and it couldn't have been collection of light or this or that, if they're insistent that this is what we saw, they send them out for a psych eval and then they're just, you're done. Your military career is over. Military wasn't a career for me. It was a ticket to go to college, but I wanted to finish my enlistment. So we made that pact and we stuck to that. Although when the OSI agent came to talk to me when I was in the hospital room, I don't know if you've ever heard or interviewed Calvin Parker. Calvin Parker, who was with Charles something or other, the Pascagoula guys fishing Louisiana 73, I think and were abducted, and they were from Alabama, I believe. Alabama, Louisiana, something, south. And this OSI agent had talked like Calvin Parker. He had this thick, unique Southern accent. And he said, son, 
I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled on to something when you were out there. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Well, how, how did you know you were out there? What do you mean? So you were in the hospital because you had these burns. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I jumped ahead. I should have explained. Yeah. When we got home, we were sick as dogs. I had nausea. I had 103 temp. I had this sunburns and I had this thing going on in my eyes. I just drove six hours in sunshine and my eyes were killing me. My head was pounding. And that was kind of an embarrassment because we were both members of the hospital squad. So we knew everyone. We knew all the doctors, the nurses, we knew everybody. Everybody in the hospital squad knew we were making this camping trip. And both of us were kind of like the nerds of the squad. You know, we'd never been camping before. I was a city kid. Toby was from Flint. He'd never been on a camping trip in his life. And we're asking people, how do you go camping? And they look at us like we're nuts. And, you know, pack some sandwiches, and you know, and then you just go so buy a $10 Walmart tent, which is what we did, Kmart. So we got to the hospital and they separated us, which according to Robert Hastings, is pretty standard. They separated us and the hospital commander, the base commander, I knew the hospital commander fairly well. He was a decent guy. I knew of the base commander. I'd seen him at ceremonies and parades and stuff. So I knew him by sight, but I'd never had a conversation with him in my life. And then there was a third guy in civilian clothing I did not recognize. And these three walked into the room as the doctor is finishing up with me and asked the doctor to excuse himself and to please shut the door of the exam room on his way out. And so he left and the guy in civilian clothes, the base commander, neither one of them said a word. The hospital commander said to me, Sergeant Lovelace sure to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape, or form. You're not to tell him anything. You're not to pass him any messages. You're not to communicate with him through third parties. You know, pretty standard stuff like a personal protection order in a domestic violence case today. Now, you know, now when you say base commander, you mean like the garrison commander of Whiteman Air Force Base? Correct. Correct. All right. That is extremely, extremely odd. That is extremely odd. And did he say why he was like, I mean, he never said how would they, how would have they gotten word or how would they have known that you were in that clearing other than we left people- everything there. And in Toby's backpack, we were both NCOs and we lived in NCO housing on, on the base. So Toby had his phone number and address. They were regular streets. I think it was McKissick drive. Uh, Whiteman Air Force Base and had its own zip code and its phone number. So they figured out it was two airmen from the base down there. Which, again, this is just lead, this is leading to lots of questions. Like, so what you're telling me is within 24 hours of this event, somebody had been monitoring that clearing close enough to notice that there was a tent there and to triangulate it back to. Okay, sorry. <laughs> what it would have happened in less than much less than twenty four hours. So interesting. So within uh, it was six hours to get there, uh, some period of time that you had to decide that you had to go to the hospital, and they were there shortly after you checked in into well, a bed. No, I was hospitalized for two days. Of one, two, three, three nights. On the third night, there is when the OSI agent came to visit me. Okay. So 
there was some time, but for the base commander and the hospital commander to be involved and give me that kind of uh, order. And he stressed, this is an order. If you disobey this order, there'll be consequences. Still, the fact that somebody had eyes on this area where it could cascade all the way up and down the chain of command that quickly is odd. Well, you know what? I've had lots of years to think about this. You know, the other thing that we did was we got up to that chain that went across the road that was the boundary line between the state park and land owned by the Bureau of Land Management. And I pulled up to the chain and I'm like, oh, man, I guess we'll turn around, find another way. And Toby's on the passenger side, says, no, hang on, man, I got this. And he hops out of the car. And what these park rangers had done, where they would take the end of the chain, they would loop it around and they click the padlock just to make a noose out of it. And they had it draped on a post on the opposite side of the road. So if they wanted to go into that section for whatever reason, or somebody wanted to come out, they didn't have to fumble with a key. They could just pick up the chain, drop it, drill through, and then put the chain back up. We didn't put the chain back up. Mm. We just drove in. So plus, you know, we had a campfire. There would have, may have been some smoke. So there were a couple of things that could have been uh, a clue. Chain would have been the thing that set off the, so. yeah. They patrol those roads. So, but the amazing thing to me was I had kind of an interrogation, but not kind of. I had an, I was interrogated by this guy and I'm 22. I don't have the benefit of life experience. I'm just scared to death. I mean, I'd never been in trouble a day in my life. And he, and he alluded to, you know, you boys got a little marijuana patch down there. Is that what this is all about? Well, that's comical today, but I got to tell you, 1977, that would have been a ticket to Leavenworth. Mm -hmm. It was a very big deal. So I was thoroughly intimidated. And his sidekick, they both showed us their OSI badges. And the older guy who did all the talking was a major. The other guy was the younger guy, early 30s, was a captain. Captain leaves. I'm in there just with this older guy. And he did that thing. I think I started to get started to saying, you know, you know, and I know, and you know, you boys stumbled onto something when you were out there. And I think you know what I'm talking about. And I didn't answer his question because I, I didn't know how to answer his question. And he says, oh, yeah. He says, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he says, I want you to tell me how many pictures of it you took. And, you know, without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I never took a single picture. Mm -hmm. interrogation over he just smiled i just validated for him that we saw something i knew they well, know, and, also, and also that where he was probably most concerned you had no evidence that you saw something that was their concern i i think that they really believed that i had a 36 exposure roll of black and white film of this thing god i wish i had I forgot my camera. Toby had a camera. Neither one of us thought to use it. I don't think we'd have used it. I've heard this before from people who told me, I saw this amazing thing in the sky, and I didn't even think to take my phone out of my pocket. I've heard it from lots of people, not just, not just one or two. It's a very common thing. Yeah. And again, I think that's the level of influence that they have. It should be the first thing to cross our mind, not an afterthought. So the OSI was infamous. I don't know if you've ever spoken to Richard Doty or not. 
I haven't. I'd be a little nervous to, because it was in the business of discrediting people. And that's the other thing too, which makes it much harder to validate all these stories because some of them were deliberately created in order to hide other programs like the F-117 yes. fighter and, and things like that. So misinformation. And and also what misinformation does is it makes it easier to discredit people who've had legitimate experiences. That's right. So, so the short answer is no, I haven't spoken with them. But the other thing I find is that people in intelligence or military circles seem not to return my emails. It's kind of weird. Imagine that, yeah. But but it's, I don't know why I could speculate. So my thesis advisor became Obama's Secretary of Defense. And I just know a lot of the lingo. So again, I have nothing against Lou Elizondo, but I find it interesting that his specialty was counterintelligence. So as an example, again, I'm not, uh, he, 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 as far as I'm concerned, he's completely legit. However, if I'm a skeptic and I wanted to keep this secret hidden, a good strategy would be to come out in plain sight and said, hey, if you're in the military and you want to be a whistleblower and you have one of these experiences, come to me, we'll categorize it, we'll get everything down, and then, boom, I got you. You're mine. Yeah. So. I'm not saying that's the case, but you have to look through that lens in all these cases because there could be any number of motivations in order to either keep a secret hidden or maybe they just saw something that was U.S. tech that we don't want to get. That could be too. That could be too. But anyway, anyway, these guys never – these guys never – talk to me so two weeks ago uh, i spent four days in la with lou elizondo john blitch bob jacobs who had uh, the 1964 footage of the uh, missile in the sky and with the laser things pointed at it famous famous photo bob jacobs he was air force he co-authored a book with robert hastings Mm-hmm. It's called Confession. And in it, he talks about my case, and he talks about some other cases. And there, there, were, there were a bunch of people there. There were a bunch of names there that I could name it, that you would recognize, I'm sure. Uh, I used to think that what I was in was a chip thing, whatever it was that they had us in nuts and bolts put together, assembled in somebody's workshop on maybe some other dimension, maybe Indonesia, I don't know, but it was a solid thing. And then I went through and thought, maybe this wasn't solid. Maybe this was an organic thing. Maybe this was a living, breathing organism. And then there's this part of me that wonders, was this even a real event? Was this all supplanted in our memories? Was this all done by the Air Force to gauge our, or CIA to gauge our uh, reactions? Or Yeah, it's like the, MK, like the MK Ultra experiments. 
psychotronics, what just psychotronic weaponry and things like that they were looking at in the 1980s. It, again, it, it could be all of the above. It could be you know, some of these things are subsets of the others. I mean, if you want to go to the extreme, it could be that we're in a simulation and these are just parts of the simulation. Right. I, I, I mean, like I'm, I don't, I don't believe that's what it is. But, but the more I delve into this topic, the more uncertain this stuff becomes. I.e., when I say uncertain, I mean when I first got into it, I was, I always thought, yeah, of course they're ETs, of course. And now it's like, are they ETs? Are they transdimensional beings? Are they Beings that are outside of time, are they, you know, is it a U.S. government program? Are they time travelers? Are they some aspect of the natural world that we just don't understand yet? I have no idea. All this phenomena, we were talking before before we started recording about near-death experiences and things like that. I think they're all connected in some way. All this that's stuff. Huge. I, I think that's true. That interconnectedness is huge. That the difference between contact with non-human entities and the difference in having a near-death experience and having a life review by a ball of light or a deity or something in between. It's a subjective experience. I mean, is it, how do we know the difference between real and unreal? How do we know? We don't know. I, I used to have a professor in law school who used the phrase, he loved to use the phrase, you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I scratched my head and I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean you don't know what you don't know? Of course you don't know what you don't know. But that's really a pretty heavy sentence. You don't know what you don't know. And if you want an example of that, look back to some of the predictions from 1900 for the year 2000. And they predicted all these absurd things, mechanical barbers cutting hair and all this crazy stuff. And the reason for that was they didn't know what they didn't know. So that applies to this topic too. The same thing happens with remote viewers. I was talking to Stefan Schwartz and he typically doesn't remote view more than 80 years in the future, because beyond that point, the things that you see, you won't have any language for them. You wouldn't understand them in terms of seeing what future trends are and and things like that. So you would try to limit that sort of thing. But anyway, going back into your experience, when do you start to remember what actually happened on the craft? Like, how was that triggered? You know, immediately after the event, I had some bits and pieces of memory. I never had a clear linear memory, but just flashes, snippets. Of, of things that happened inside. I remember the interior of the ship. I don't know if we were in this ship that we were seeing or did they get us inside and take us somewhere else? Because while the thing that we were in was the size of a medical building, the thing that we were inside of was like an NFL stadium. So uh, bigger on the inside than on the outside if it was the same ship. By far, by far. And I don't know if there's a difference in their physics or, I mean, they have different laws of physics. I don't different laws of nature. Or maybe they took us to another ship. I'll never know. I only had a few memories after the event, and I kept a diary of them. I, I wrote them down because I thought they were important. I also made a drawing of the ship. 
in the best of my recollection. My website is terrylovelace.com. It, it's, it's poorly maintained, but I've, I've got some images posted there. And I think uh, one of those is a hand drawing that I made of the craft back in August of 1977. So pretty much contemporaneous with the event. And I found that whenever I wrote the book, and then I took that simple drawing on, on ruled paper and redrew it with art pencils onto a, a big sheet of paper, but tried to keep the image true. Yeah, that's an interesting picture. Memories. Memories came back in bits and pieces, and sometimes by dreams. Now, you know, could it be a false memory? Sure, it could be a false memory. I have no way to know if anything that's come back to me is absolutely positively true, or it wasn't manufactured in my head. I don't know. But I don't think so. I think I really feel that I know the difference between remembering something that happened in this event and anything else in the world. And I have a theory about that too. And I think that lots of people have these events and don't remember a thing. Mm -hmm. They walk away from it and it's buried so deep in their subconscious that they don't remember it. But I think that what happens is I think that it's a traumatic event. And I think little bits of that can filter up and then manifest in your life in unhealthy ways. And I admit I had my struggles after immediately following this event too. My friend who wasn't a drinker normally didn't go to bars. I mean, normally if we were at a barbecue or playing cards or something, he might have a can of beer, maybe two. I never saw the man drunk. But after this event, he was afraid to sleep. And I, I understood that. And he would pound five or six shots of vodka at night before he went to bed. And we both know what that leads to. And your, your life falls apart. You know, his marriage fell apart. His life fell apart. Yeah, I'm grateful for the memories that I have. And I'll tell you, as odd as this sounds, I'm thankful to the OSI for retrieving those memories. Because eight weeks after this thing happened, they hauled me into the OSI office. And the two agents that came to see me when I was in the hospital room were there. Standard interrogation room, the, the mirror that, that's mounted, framed into the wall. It's got to be a two-way mirror because who's going to be grooming themselves in an interrogation room? <laughs> and I'm scared to death. And when I walked in, the, the agent said, uh, the old guy did all the talking. So would you like to wrap this up today and, and finish this? And I said, yes, sir, I'd like that very much. And he said, yeah, he says, I think we can do that. He said, you know, you're going to be hypnotized today. And I'm like, no, sir, I did not know that. Yeah. And he said, yeah, we're going to do that. And we're going to give you a little bit of drugs that will make you feel relaxed. And it'll make the hypnosis so much easier. My undergraduate degree is in psychology, and I was taking psych classes. By this time, I'd had two years of college under my belt, and I knew, I would, well, I wouldn't say knew, but I was pretty, pretty darn certain that they could not hypnotize me against my will. I knew that I couldn't resist the medication, but the hypnosis, I felt confident that I could 
maybe maybe risk. Right. And I said, sir, I really don't want to do this. Do I have to do this? And that Louisiana, Alabama, whatever accent it was, pardon me for not knowing, he said, no, son, you don't have to do anything. He says, because when I was in the hospital, he had me sign a bunch of papers. And of course, you know, today I would never sign anything without reading it twice. And because of my eye injury, they kept the lights off in my room and they put the sad in my eye every four hours, an antibiotic and, or something. And because of that, my vision was blurred and I couldn't see. I mean, I couldn't see well enough to read fine print. And he laid these documents out in front of me and said, I need your signature here, 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 here. And what do I do? I'm 22. I'm done. I, I signed my name where I was told I'm scared to death. So anyway, I said, sir, I don't want to be hypnotized. I, I don't want to take any medication. I told you the truth. I can tell you again. And he says, well, that's no problem, son. You don't have to do this. He said, you don't want to. You don't have to. He says, I can take these papers out and I'll just tear them up for you. And we'll toss them in the trash can. And we'll just see you at your court martial. How about that? <laughs> I'm like, court martial? You know, I haven't even been charged with a crime, you know? <laughs> Other than he alluded to you were trespassing on the federal property. Well, a trespass on the federal property isn't the crime of the century. So I'm just reeling. and. It was pretty plain that I did not have the option of standing up and walking out of there. So I decided that I was going to have to roll with this. And seconds later, there's a knock at the door and a fourth guy enters the room. There's the two agents, myself, and this guy with oak leaves as a major, but no name tag, which is very unusual. No name tag comes in and this guy. He carries himself like a priest or a therapist. He doesn't carry himself like a military officer. You know, you're military, you would know what I mean. He, he, he was a psychologist and not a psychiatrist, right? My guess is he was a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. You know why, right? Yeah, because psychiatrists are medical doctors and they have a stricter code of ethics is what I'm thinking. Yeah. They have the Hippocratic Oath. Psychologist yes. doesn't. That's my, that's, that's my chain of reason. That's deliberate. That's not an accident. Yeah. So this guy, he knew what he was doing. Sergeant Lovelace, it's so nice to finally meet you and shakes my hand and pulls up a chair and invades my personal space, gets right up next to me and said, hey, I hear you're from St. Louis. Is that right? I said, yes, sir. And he said, you can just call me Brad just for today. Would you do that? And I remember he said this, this was creepiest line ever. He said, I wish you'd call me Brad. That is my name. And can I call you Terry? That is your name. <laughs> sure. Y yes, sir. You know, no, you mean yes, Brad. And I mm -hmm. said, yes, Brad. Just a creepy vibe to the guy is what I'm trying to get across. But he sits down, he starts talking about St. Louis, you know, rattling off some landmarks and restaurants. And then I realize I'm starting to feel at ease with this guy. And as soon as that thought crosses my mind, I mean, all my barriers go up. And I think he sensed that. And now, well, now it's time to get down to business. And he had a little like a shaving kit. And he opened it up and inside was a, a little towel, 
a Band-Aid, alcohol swabs, a tourniquet, and a syringe full of some kind of yellow fluid. Now, I've been told that the OSI used gallons of a drug called sodium amytal, which is akin to sodium pentothal. It's a short-acting hypnotic, and you use it in conjunction with hypnosis, and it's a pretty good measure of is someone being honest with you or not. So he started the hypnosis process, and it was a progressive relaxation, kind of a typical hypnosis thing where he has you visualize that you're walking down the stairwell and he has that smooth voice, like a radio announcer, you know, he's like, Terry, take the first step down, feel calm, calm and relaxed. Now take that second step, now feeling twice as relaxed and on and on and on. And in my mind's eye to resist this, I'm going up the stairs I mean, I'm doing multiplication tables in my head. I'm doing lyrics, the Beatles songs, Rolling Stones, you know, everything I can think of, not to at least not give him 100% of my mind. And when the medicine he gave me hit me, it really was like, bam. And I was kind of in a uh, weird place. But he started the questioning with, I understand you and Toby went on a little camping trip. Is that right? And I said, yes, Brad. And he says, my, that must have been exciting. And I said, yes, Brad. And he said, you saw some funny lights in the sky, didn't you? I said, yes, Brad. Wait, how did he know that? No idea. No idea. But it gets even weirder. But they weren't funny lights at all, were they, Terry? And I said, no, Brad, they weren't. And he said, who were they, Terry? And I said, and I don't know where this came from, but I said, they're the space people. And he said, did you go with them? And I said, they took us, Brad. They took us out of the tent. And a lot of the mental imagery that I can recall from this event came back into my memory through that hypnosis session. Now at the end, toward the end of the hypnosis session, he asked me, he said, did you take any photographs of this thing? Do you have any film hidden anywhere? Because I think that was really the object of the exercise. And oh, by the way, when I mentioned, when he was talking about what I saw in there, I said, I saw some other human beings that wore tan colored flight suits and had orange patches on their sleeve. And I said, I didn't know who they were, but they had combat boots look just like mine. And they had military style haircuts. And when I said that, there was a flurry of activity. Now I'm kind of in this sedated position like this, so I really can't see what's going on, but I can hear paper shuffling. I heard a expletive or two and Brad jumps in pretty quickly and says, You know, Terry, not everything you saw was real. He says, sometimes our mind plays tricks on us. That's not a real memory. You know, that's silly. That didn't happen, did it? And I thought, like hell, I know it happened. But to appease him, I said, yes, Brad. But I thought, you know what? I own these memories. You know, these are mine. And 
even though I'm 22 and I, I don't know a lot, I knew at some level, this is important stuff. And I should remember it. And one day it'll be time to talk about it. So they knew, they knew these, Absolutely. whoever. They knew. Well, tell me more about the memory of these people in the, the kind of the khaki, is it khaki or tan uniforms with orange patches? Yeah, there were, I would call seven. It could have been six. It's six or seven. They were young people, our age, 18 to 22, I'm guessing, military style haircuts. All of them were Caucasian with the exception of there was a woman. There was one woman who was short in stature, who appeared to be Latino, Hispanic, and ethnicity. And they looked. Now, they wouldn't, they wouldn't look at us. They completely ignored us. But they absolutely, positively looked like human beings. And the fact that they were, I focused on their combat boots. They're a fair distance away. So, you know, a black boot is a black boot. But I think they were wearing the same boots I was wearing. What were they doing? They were in like a single file line. And they were... I could not hear them, but they were kind of conversing in whispers and they walked up to a panel that was sideways. So where I was at, I was facing in this direction. I could see them walk up to it in a line and kind of gather around it and do things like pushing buttons and then turn around and walk away. There's no doubt in my mind they were crew members. They carried themselves like they were members of the crew. They didn't carry themselves like anything but. They were absolutely no doubt like in medics or medical personnel or anything like that. They were like people helping to fly something. Yes. Yes, I believe that. Any differences in height other than the short, stout woman? No, it was tall. kind of a mixed bag because the guy in front, I noticed, was blonde and tall. I don't recall that anyone wore eyeglasses. I didn't see any wristwatches. I didn't see anything that I can interpret as an insignia, but I was a fair distance away. I could see the orange patch on their sleeve, but I couldn't make out what was said on it. So the way they were walking, it would have been on their left shoulder. Yep. That's about all that I remember. This was a circular patch, square patch. It was circular with some white writing on it. White something around. Orange. In English. English, different language. I mean, again, I'm asking, I'm, I'm pushing. Yeah, I know. I wish I could. I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could remember. Any iconography on it, either some sort of animal, like, again, I don't have any, I'm not, I'm not steering this in any particular direction. I'm just, there's a yeah. lot of iconography in some of these programs with dragons, reptiles, Tigers. things like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah it could be, who knows? I, just saw white. I mean, just I could see there was white lettering, but I don't recall any images. I don't recall any symbols. As a matter of fact, I saw one symbol in the entire thing. This, this ship, everything in the ship was either gray, gray metallic, or like a gray rubberized flooring. White, like gloss white paint, stainless steel. And that's about it. That was that was what the entire inside of the thing was made from. 
Now, besides your comrade, was there anybody else on these tables where you found yourself? Not on the tables. I mentioned that I saw the guys that I thought were crew members. In addition to those, to my right, there was a row of people. And I have no idea, because I couldn't turn my head, I have no idea how far back they were lined up in columns. So I don't know how deep those columns were. But I could see four or five people in the front and maybe in the second row, I could see people. But the columns could have been 100 people or it could have been four people. I don't know. It was the limit of what my eyes could, could see. And what was disturbing about that was this was a mixed bag of people, of men, women, and children. And they were all, they were all been undressed and were all holding their clothing and their shoes exactly like this in front of their chest, like this. And it was disturbing too, because every one of them is rolling their eyes like all over, trying to drink it in and trying to see everything that they can see, which is what we were doing. I think it's human nature to want to do that. And it's when, when it's the only sense you have to rely on is your sense of vision and, and it's limited to that. You try to take in everything and they were all crying. They were all, and I have no idea how long they'd been standing there. I know this, that they kicked us out of the thing, but I don't know where those people went. You know, I hope they they Ubered them home, but I, I, I don't know. And that's, I've had uh, maybe survivor guilt or just that nagging question about were those people okay? I don't know. I mean, my guess is this is a lot more common than people know. I think you're right. Okay, so you see the people in uniform. Do you see anything else? Yes, I saw a lot of little gray guys running around. Now, I, I took a lot of heat over this because, my opinion, all of the gray guys that I saw looked like they were all identical. And it was interesting, I thought, because I'm watching them and they're all task-oriented. They're all doing something. You know, there's no slackers. There's nobody taking a smoke break. You know, nobody's having a Coke and talking with their buddy. Everybody is doing, they're all going someplace and doing something. I think that they're manufactured, at least the ones that I saw. I had people write to me and say, oh, you got that totally wrong. They're very intelligent. They communicate. They do this. They do that. And I'm sure that whatever they saw, they saw. I'm not going to, you know, question the validity of their story. But I know what I saw. And in my situation, and, and Calvin Parker had the same opinion. Calvin Parker said, yeah, I think them are little robots. And I said, yeah, I think they, they come off an assembly line for sure. I don't know if that's true or not. Just my- It could be, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just, I have no reason to believe this. It could be consciousness vehicles. So some higher consciousness just inhabits them for some particular task. And then, I mean, I've heard stories of people recounting that they've seen these grays piled up in closets like cordwood. Really? Now that wouldn't surprise mm. me. That yeah. wouldn't surprise me because I, I really got that vibe that they were possibly very intelligent, but they weren't sentient, you know, in the way that you and I are. So I did see uh, a six foot tall being, I only saw one, 
and it walked across my field of vision from my right to my left. And he was different from the little gray guys and that his complexion was a chalky, I describe it as chalky, pasty, maybe pinkish a little bit. Oh, but chalky, like the kind of tall white sort of. Yeah, if, if you go in the book, I, I actually use that word, chalky. Yeah. I'm sure I did. Yeah, chalky, pasty, white. Odd, odd complexion. They were not gray. He was not gray. He was six foot tall, slender build. Arms were maybe just a little bit longer than they should have been. I didn't get a good look at his hands. He wore boots. He wore a garment that was like a knit uniform kind of thing that was gray. I saw no insignia of rank, no name tag, no identifying anything. But just like the guys in the tan flight suits, he walked across my field of vision and this guy carried himself with authority. I thought this is someone not only who works here, but someone that has some rank. And he had my eyes strained to the left as far as I can. And he's doing something on a panel and I'm staring at him. And then by happenstance, he turns and we locked eyes. And of all the things that happened to me in, in that day, that was probably the, the most frightening was because this thing was in my head. And it was a terrible invasion of my privacy in that he knew me. I mean, he knew everything about me. He knew my secrets. He knew my plans. He knew my sins. He knew my desires. He knew everything about me. And in turn, I think he then some way he then knew everyone that I knew, which I, I don't know, like that interconnectedness thing. But I, I felt like he took a copy of my head. I mean, he downloaded this stuff. He took that from me. And his eyes were, again, black, almond-shaped, jet black, gloss black, actually, and about the size of wraparound Ray-Bans, but what I got reflected in his eyes was intellect. Mm -hmm. And I, I have an analogy I, I like to give because I think it's a good one. And that is that I have a dog. She knows her name. She'll come. She'll put her head in my lap. I'll pet her on top of the head. And we each know our respective roles. She knows that I'm the alpha. She knows she's the dog. And in this equation... I felt like the dog. I felt absolutely inferior. And it was an epiphany to realize that there are things out there in the universe, entities, beings, living things. Because I think we think of ourselves as apex predators at the top of the food chain, and, and we're not. And that's a big pill for a lot of people to swallow. But I'm Now, to bastardize Nietzsche, sometimes when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back into you. Did you get anything from his side? Just, it, it's a vague thing to describe, but what I got back was intellect. Just that this thing is analytical. While we're locked eyes for just that second or two, it's already analyzing my life and what I am and my biology. And a lot going on there. So that, that was frightening to me. And then the third 
kind of entity that I saw was I had heard a woman screaming and they came and they took Toby, the little gray guys took Toby and I heard him scream and then they came and they got me. And it was like I was, I, I didn't have shoes or socks on, I was barefoot and my foot didn't touch, my feet didn't touch the floor. I was elevated like maybe a quarter inch or less from the floor and like I was floating on air and they could just pull me along. And they took me down this hallway and into this white domed room. And there were these two entities and they were insectoids. They were praying mantises. And you would- How tall? Seven foot. Okay. I'm guessing seven foot. And one of the little gray guys took my clothing. But you know what I knew? I didn't feel like these things were going to harm me. This thing, this had a distinctly clinical vibe to it. It did. It felt medical. It didn't feel like a torture session. And there was a kind of an exam table, just like a white porcelain. And they took my clothing from me, elevated me somehow and put me on top of this table. And I, I remember thinking I was expecting, because it looked like white porcelain, I was expecting it to be cold, but it wasn't. It was warm. And I thought, Oh, this is nice. They warmed it up for me. And I thought, no, stupid. It's warm because there's been 15, 20, 100 people laying here just seconds before. And they did something to my lower back. And I don't know what, but it hurt. And it hurt a lot. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, these things are so smart. Why don't they do something to my pain? Why don't they do something to deaden the sensation? Because I can't move, I can scream but I can't open my mouth and I can't open my jaw. So it's kind of a muted scream, but it's a scream nonetheless. And I'm inhaling and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. So whatever he's doing down there hurts. You know? And I have back issues to this day. I filed for disability for back injury related to lifting of patients when I was active duty. And uh, they gave me an award. They gave me a rating of 20% plus another rating of 10% for uh, tinnitus without a medical exam. That's that's very odd. That's, that's extremely true. odd. Yeah. Have you ever asked for your medical records from the Air Force? I did. I'm glad. I'm glad you asked about that because in you know this happened. 1977, I really had put this kind of to bed in my mind until 2012, when I was at the VA hospital and I had the x-rays and I looked at them and I saw the foreign objects in my body. And that was validation that, yeah, these things did put their hands on me. And that was just untenable for me. I really had trouble processing that because I had kind of come to peace with it and decided that I would take this issue to my grave. I, you know, my wife and I never spoke about it. We were married, we're still married. And yeah, th th those x-rays kind of kicked up frightening memories and nightmares that I hadn't had in years. And it kind of kick-started the PTSD thing. And this is weird. I know like naked store mannequins 
and like we used to go to malls, you know, in a mall, in the front windows of malls, you sometimes see as they're changing out the front window, they'd have naked mannequins posed and all kinds of odd. Uh, for some reason, those freak me out. I can't look at them. Oh, there's a reason. There's a good reason. So you've heard of the uncanny valley, right? I have not. So it's a term that they use in AI. There's a certain point where you have something that looks vaguely human, but you know, like a chimpanzee, like you're not afraid of a chimpanzee, right? Unless it were rampage or whatever. Right. It looks kind of similar, but it's still relatively far off. But as you approach something that looks almost human, but not quite, it's called the uncanny valley. It freaks people out. And then when you get into something that looks very human, you're back to not being afraid of it, which I've always thought suggests something in our distant evolutionary memory that there was something out there that was very similar, but uncanny enough to be dangerous to our ancestors. Like and the there's actually I, like the woman I met in a bookstore. Yeah, well, I mean, like terrifying, something that's, yeah, that's not quite. Yeah, she wasn't terrifying, but something was off. But Yeah, yeah, something's off. In fact, there's an author I've interviewed in the past. His name's Laird Barron. He has a, a story called Tiptoe that's about just this. Again, it's not real. It's fiction, but it's it plays off that riff of the uncanny valley and the belief or the notion, notion's better, that there may have been some species in our distant evolutionary memory that was close enough that was a threat or was or perceived as a threat by our ancestors. And that's just been passed on. And, and that could go back to being afraid of a Neanderthal or who knows? Yeah. Or an alien. A absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. Hey, anyway, I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'll throw these things out from time to time. Okay, so you're afraid of mannequins. Yeah, I, I'm, I have this weird fear of mannequins. And in 1987, I was at a mall in Lansing, Michigan, with my wife doing Christmas shopping, and I walked around the corner. We separated, and it, it was like a woman's uh, clothing store. There was a banquet table, and there were these nude mannequins. They were just from the waist up no legs and they were seated there were four or five of them and they, they hadn't dressed them yet and they had just those uh faces that had no fig they were just flat there were no features and they had longer than they should have been arms and wrists and hands uh, i'm sure for on purpose and they were just they hadn't been posed so they were in this odd bunch of weird poses and I'm just walking along and I turned and I glanced and I saw that and I about passed out and I've had a few panic attacks in my life. And I can tell you, if you've never had one, they are real and they are terrible. And I was tachycardic. I was having trouble catching my breath and I wanted to run. And that's what I did. I ran out of the store. I ran out of the mall and into a snowstorm, just raging outside. I didn't have a cell phone. So, of course, 1987. And uh, I eventually caught up with my wife. I had to go back in and find her and said, you know, let's go home. I, I, I really want to go home. It shook me up. It really did. All right, Terry. I think we're going to take a break here. We're definitely going to continue with this story because we're going to get back into the operating room with 
the beings that you saw. And then we're also going to talk about things that have happened to you since then. So thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking with you again, my friend. Speak soon. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate everything. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.